We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Long Shots Off-Track Betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all-music books podcast where we speak with authors of music books, bios, history, criticism, cultural takes, and everything in between. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Clint Brownlee, who wrote an entry for the 33 and a third series on Pearl Jam's epic record, Verses. Welcome, Clint. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. We've had a lot of authors for 33 and a third series, and I always ask the same question because it's a fascinating one. Give us your pitch to 33 and a third. What did you want to write about? Oh, God. You know, I'd been a Pearl Jam fan for a long time since I was a teenager and followed their albums and their career and, and what they've done over the years. And when I became aware that, hey, this 33 and a third series is a thing and, and maybe I should try to contribute to it, I naturally gravitated to Pearl Jam and, and then went to this record because I felt like this is the record that sort of defined what they have become since. And so I, I kind of based the pitch around that, that yes, they are a huge and successful rock band, but this album sort of put them on that track where it, it very much could have gone the other way. And I just felt like that was kind of fascinating that this was the album, at least in my mind, that was that turning point in the road for them where, you know, they could have just sort of imploded and 10 would have been it. Or, you know, they go on this path and, and do their own thing, ultimately. You open your book with a great story about who turned you on to Pearl Jam. Can you recount that for our listeners? Sure, yeah, that's, uh, that's all credit due to my mom. You know, I'd, I'd probably heard Jeremy, maybe, uh, at that time. But she, you know, she was cool. She'd listen to music uh, on the radio or you know she listened to watch MTV and she saw the Jeremy video before I did and tells me hey you've got to watch this video I'm like okay so next time it comes on and we're there we are watching it together and it's just like wow the, okay this is a this is a band I need to pay attention to and that that was it that sort of changed things for me it's such a fascinating kind of cultural divide where, you know, you learn of music via video. And I learned a lot of music mm -hmm. from my parents or my mom, really, as well. You write in your book, at 19 years old, after seeing Pearl Jam in San Francisco, they were your Led Zeppelin. And that, quote, music made itself an inextricable part of you before you even knew what you were. I think a lot of kids probably feel that. But can you explain that? It's probably not at all unique. But you know, in my case, anyway, I was a teenager, I dealing with teenage crap that they all deal with. 
not really sure where my life was going to go. Not really sure what I wanted to do, you know, directionless, you know, I knew I was going to go to college, but what did I want to do? And this, you know, music kind of came in at that time and gave me something to latch onto and, you know, carried me through college and, and adulthood. And it sort of helped me define myself at the time. And yeah, what's wonderful about music is it's just, it's always there, you know? I agree. And it's such a, a perfect time to learn all of that stuff, including, you know, about yourself. And, you know, that, that's kind of a central tenet of your book, especially Band versus Fame. And in 1991, Pearl Jam's debut album came out. It featured Even Flow, Alive, one of my favorites, and of course, Jeremy. When that song and video hit, you write that the band was only two years old and they just simply weren't ready for it. I have to believe that, you know, the intent of forming a band is, you know, you, you want some sort of success, no matter what kind of band you are, even, you know, punk bands who probably traditionally didn't aim for quote unquote success. That That's kind of what, you know, you want to be on a stage and play to people. That's what they were aiming for, but they were not aiming for, you know, near instant success and having just everything sort of handed to them so quickly. I think that they wanted to put a lot of effort into it and feel like they deserved it and to have the perception be generally that they deserved it. And so I think when it was just sort of all heaped on them so quickly, it was just like not well accepted, you know, universally in the band. And what was their response? It was kind of mixed. I think there was a lot of internal struggle with it at first. Probably generally, the feeling was this is not what we set out to do so quickly. And, you know, in particular, Ed was obviously the, the one that was most put off by that development. I think the feeling was sort of mixed. I think uh, like Jeff and Stone, they had already been in bands that were on the cusp. Uh, Mother Love Bone was you know, right there. Who knows what would have happened if uh, Andy Wood hadn't have passed away. I think they were kind of on the edge of being ready for that to happen. And then Dave, the drummer, I think he ate it up. I think he loved it. And Mike was probably somewhere in the middle, just having a blast, you know, having a good time with success in general. And with Ed sort of becoming the most powerful member of the band as he did, I think he sort of steered them away from it. And I don't think it was easy for them to agree upon that. What's interesting is, is you write in late 1992, uh, Eddie Vedder spends an epic night out at an Irish bar with, of all people, Dylan, Tom Petty, George yeah. Harrison, and Eric Clapton. Crazy. What advice did they give him about this? You know, I, I don't know. I can't tell you definitively what anyone other than Bob Dylan said, just because that's been documented. Dylan specifically told him just to ignore the media, turn away from everything. Just don't pay attention. Don't read the paper. Don't watch TV. Whatever Ed may have been feeling at the time already, that had to have just sealed it for him. Right, right. And I'm sure that had something to do with them deciding to record outside of Seattle for the second record, just kind of get away from it. It's interesting because I, I wonder what was going through Ed's head as he looked around that table and saw, you know, kind of four legends, you know. and thinking, Yeah, wow. that's got to be something. And that's another thing, like that happened so quickly like how could you predict you know you'd be in in that in that situation so fast oftentimes you know when things rise so fast the sophomore records are career killers you know bands spend all their time writing and performing and you know working on things they've had for years and then the success hits a new record is due and they're in a scramble how did pearl jam 
handle this going into work on verses? I feel like 10, anybody would agree, is pretty accomplished record for a first record, but I don't think that it was what the band wanted to have define them. You know, they didn't like the mix of it later on, and they sort of downplayed some of the songs on the record. And I just don't think that it was what they thought was Pearl Jam at the time, and they needed to fill that out. And I think working on the second record, they clearly had a lot of other ideas, other song structures, other other topics they wanted to cover. I think that was kind of what, what drove them. And you mentioned the band was so huge in Seattle. So, of course, they head south to California to, you know, a posh recording space called The Site, which had previously hosted Keith Richards, Dolly Parton, Huey Lewis. And, of course, Eddie hates it. <laughs> yeah, like literally hates it. Um, <laughs> it's just, I don't know, it's funny. There's that Cameron Crowe piece and Rolling Stone did a good job of covering it at the time that he was there to interview them at the time of the recording. And, you know, you've got Dave Eversees, who's just loving it. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, Eddie's like literally said, I can't stand this place. He's surrounded by all this stardom and they've got, the, you know, the private chef and they've got the, the sauna and it, it's just, I don't know. I think it was not what he was aiming for. And he ditches all that convenience and adapts by, by writing songs away from the site, right? Yeah, yeah. So he was driving some small truck at the time and had it with him and he would just up and disappear for days at a time, I guess, and just drive around the California hills and go down into the city. And I think he was just trying to prove to himself maybe that he was not the famous person that should be at the site. He was just another person that, you know, could be on the street. I feel like maybe that helped him stay grounded in reality and, you know, the lyrics, the topics that he had in mind, I'm sure that helped fuel, you know, feeling of authenticity. I think that comes through in the record. Definitely. And on the plus side, it's here that their relationship with Brendan O'Brien begins. And we'll get into that later, but you know, they mm-hmm. forged quite a relationship. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You're listening to All Music Books Deep Dive, part of All Music Podcasts and Pantheon Media. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. We're speaking with Clint Brownlee, who's the author of Pearl Jam Verses in the 33 and a Third series. So that album opens with the song Animal, and the first thing you hear is one, two, three, four, five against one. And five against one was a working title. That was about this situation, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And that was kind of straightforward. Like, okay, there are five guys in the band, and the one is the world, you know, the everybody and everything else that was sort of in opposition to, to what they were going for at the time. Super kind of confrontational and maybe not exactly what you'd want to label your second album after having such success. But yeah, I think it puts a pretty clear view on the thinking at the time of, of it was an adversarial sort of situation that they were in. There's other thinking that maybe it's Vetter himself. He's the one and the other four guys in the band and O'Brien could be the fifth. So there's 
I don't know, there's some conjecture out there about maybe five against one wasn't everybody against Eddie Vedder, but I feel like it was more likely uh, or more accurately just the band against everything else. It's interesting. I think some of the most classic records have that kind of duality where you figure it out for yourself and what do you believe, but it eventually ends up as verses. And where did that iconic cover shot come from? Because that's so recognizable. Sort of a side note, the cover that is on the book, I chose that one because that's the image that's on the CD. Mm-hmm. The image on the actual LP that was released at the time is a little bit different. The sheep doesn't have its teeth bared. It looks a little more demure. But I wanted to go with this one because at the time, you know, CD was the top format and that's kind of what everybody bought. And it's also got that more angry look to it. You know, this animal looks like it's not happy and it's trying to get out of that fence. But yeah, anyway, that's uh, that is uh, Jeff Ament. Uh, the bassist took the the picture. It's uh, somewhere a farm in Montana, you know, one where he uh, is from out there. And I feel like, I don't know, it just plays in perfectly to this adversary idea. Definitely. I'm glad they kept the sneer because I don't know, a smiling sheep. <laughs> yeah, it just doesn't have the same feel. This album marks the seeds of Pearl Jam's activism as well. In your book, Vetter explains this through a really beautiful analogy of oil painting. Yeah, that was sort of his his way of addressing topics that he felt needed to be explored. Starting with something small, I think he said it was, you know, it could be an idea or an image, just an element of something. And you are literally sort of blowing up the canvas, making it larger, spreading it with color and distance and making it bigger. So, you know, maybe it's not just for you anymore, but more people can see it and be exposed to it and think about it. He said it gives the art an action and a reaction. It's got something to say. It's looking for the listener to react as well. Classic strategy in my book. (laughs) Yeah. Their activism would grow, yet a lot of things like concerts and events and interviews that would almost disappear. Was that strategy simply let the music do the talking after the reaction to the first record? Yeah, I think that's exactly what it was. Okay, you know, we're here to get music into people's ears. We're not here to be on covers of magazines and to hear ourselves talk, especially with Ed becoming the spokesperson at the time. That was very much his opinion that, you know, this is not about us. This is about people listening to what we've created. It's interesting, too, because there's definitely a difference between the first and second album, I think. And what do you think of the notion that some of the hooks and vocals were purposefully buried or hidden or mumbled? I do think they actually put effort into making the songs not as accessible as they might have been. You know, whether it's the the sound of his voice and maybe the lyrics. To this day, I've heard it hundreds of times, and there are parts of the songs that I wouldn't even know what he's saying had the lyrics not been printed somewhere. And I think that was very much by design. And I think part of his strategy early on had also been that he was not into the idea of telling people what the lyrics meant. He wanted people to kind of take their own meaning from it. You sort of alluded to that earlier. That was sort of the idea is that maybe this doesn't have to be 100% straightforward and 100% audible and very catchy. It just needs to be something that people can appreciate and spend time with and develop their own ideas around. It's sort of fascinating that a band would go into the studio with that in mind. Like, hey, let's make a great record, but let's not make it 
I, I don't even know what the word is. Let's let's not make it obvious. Maybe obvious. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It might be brilliant because it actually forces repeated listening. You know. <laughs> and, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know. I think that those those records do stand the test of time. You know, Dylan, who yeah. we talked about earlier, a lot of his records. You know, you just don't get what he's talking about. That's right. Yep. The more you listen to it, the more you know, or at least you think you know. Exactly. They did, however, do the talking uh, when it came to ticket prices, and they took on Ticketmaster, which could have killed the band right as it was peaking. But it was the concerts that were the thing with Pearl Jam. That went hand-in-hand with why they were taking on Ticketmaster, is, is they wanted more people to be able to see their concerts. Again, it was it was about the music. It was about the live experience and you know, I don't think they were as concerned with making money as they were about just sharing what they were creating with with people, and especially young people. That was really critical is, you know, having young people experience their music. You're kind of the perfect example because it's something you, you learned of from video. And then I know early on you saw them and it, it blew you mm-hmm. away. So yeah, you know, that's yeah. the moment, right? Exactly. Oh, that that was it. Yeah. And at this point, they're arguably the most powerful band in the world, and they're looking for alternate ways to tour behind verses. So they didn't have to use Ticketmaster, or could at least put them at arm's length. What kind of things were they looking into? It's hard to imagine how much effort and thought must have went into that. But yeah, you know, they were looking at venues that were not tied to Ticketmaster in any way, cities that were sort of not on the beaten path of tours. They looked into like lottery systems for ticketing, and then. You know, if, I think it was a couple of years later, they were doing tickets that were specifically tied to to people. You know, they would print your name on your ticket. Just different ways to to work around the standard of what had been done for so long. I don't know. It, it had to have been taxing. Yeah, because you, you have that success of the first record. Now you're putting out a follow-up and you might as well try and reshape everything and put more on <laughs> yeah, yourself, right? right? <laughs> so Ticketmaster is a behemoth and they must have had a response to all of this. It's kind of interesting. At first, I think, you know, they sort of bent to Pearl Jam's, you know, quote unquote demands, what they were trying to do. There was a time at the beginning of this where Ticketmaster was like, okay, you know, we'll allow you to sort of work with different promoters and different people. As Pearl Jam got more active and, uh, you know, openly anti-Ticketmaster, you know, they started playing hardball and warning promoters and venues that they could not go outside of their agreements with Ticketmaster and threatened lawsuits and they got ugly. And ultimately Pearl Jam's got to cancel a tour because it was just too difficult to try to figure out how to do all this. Crazy that they they took it to such an extreme, but I think it says a lot that they did. Definitely. And Stone Gossard and Jeff Ament testified before congressional hearings. Mm-hmm. And Mike McCready said a lot of bands said, we're with you. And he says they all bailed, leaving Pearl Jam just twisting in the wind. Yeah. I mean, it's weird that, given the legitimate gripe that they had with Ticketmaster, that they were the only ones there. It's hard to understand why they were the only ones there. You have to believe that, you know, other successful big bands at the time, I would think like U2 probably around there would have been in the same boat. It seems like you could expect them to kind of be there by by Pearl Jam's side, but no, nobody's there. So I, I wonder if there was some aspect of the rest of sort of the music industry, at least, the band part of it are just kind of waiting around to see like, well, how's this going to play out? And do we want to back up Pearl Jam or just kind of wait and see what happens? It could result in, in negativity for the for the bands themselves. So I, my guess is that a lot of other acts were like, yeah, we're on your side, but we're going to just kind of let you 
<laughs> take the bullet. <laughs> what, if anything, is their legacy on this stance today? Because it, what's interesting is at the time, they're also recording their next record. So, you know, touring is on the agenda. Yeah, yeah. They were trying to do a lot at the same time. You know, I think that their stance against Ticketmaster, you know, you could say that it ultimately failed. Ticketmaster is just too, you said behemoth, they were too too big of a behemoth to have their power taken away from them. It, it just ultimately didn't, didn't work. But as the years have gone on, the band is still coming up with different ways. And now they're controlling basically their, their ticketing processes and stuff. So, you know, long-term results have been good, but at the time, yeah, they were, you know, they're trying to plan tours. They're trying to record another record. If anything, if there's a, a legacy that you point to at that time is that that fight told the world that they were they were not posturing it was not an, an empty yeah we want people to come see our shows and then you know it's just you know lip service they they were all in about what they believed in and i think it proved that they could be highly creative and moral they were trying to do the right thing Definitely. We're speaking with Clint Brownlee, the author of Pearl Jam Verses in the 33 and a Third series. And I want to talk a little bit about the music on this album. We spoke a little bit about Brendan O'Brien's contributions. Tell us how the recording of Daughter happened. I found that very interesting. Yeah, that's uh, that's where Ed had been out, you know, doing his thing on his own. They had sort of already established he needed this time away. And so every once in a while, he would just disappear. You have to hand it to O'Brien for being okay with that. And while the lyric writer is away and they don't have somebody to sing uh, or sort of you know lead the band, O'Brien's got the rest of the guys still actively creating and working in the studio and on, you know, ready. So when Eddie shows back up again, as he did here, he walks in the door and he's like, hey, okay, let's let's do daughter. And they're ready to go just like that. And I think that has a lot to do with O'Brien keeping everybody creatively nimble and, and ready to go at any point. How about the final few seconds of rear view mirror? That's interesting. Yeah, that's one of my favorite little stories on the record is that was the last song that they recorded during the sessions. I heard it. I don't know how many times I heard it at the end of the song. You hear that kind of clatter, probably don't recognize it for what it is. And what it actually is, is they went through multiple, multiple takes trying to get the song right. And O'Brien was not thrilled with the, the drumming. And uh, Eddie was not thrilled with his own vocals. And so they just kept doing it and kept doing it. And what you hear at the end of the song is the culmination of the, the frustration of drummer uh, Dave just pissed. And, and, you know, once he's finished that take, he throws the sticks up against the wall and that's what you hear, that clatter. And it's just awesome that they surely knew that was captured and they decided that we're leaving that in. I feel like that says something. It definitely informs that song for sure. And O'Brien was the one who really pushed for Better Man, which Vetter kind of kept at arm's length. Yeah. And I think that plays right into that, not maybe wanting things to be obvious on the record, maybe a little less accessible. It's just such a successful, big song that people love to sing along with. Like first time you hear it, you want to sing along with it. And I think O'Brien did too. And so he wanted it on the record. And Ed was uh, very keen on not including it. And I think he must have known that's why it's going to be big. And we don't want big as part of this sophomore album. 
there was a little bit of a chess match between the two of them while they're in the studio as, as O'Brien's trying to get him to record it and, you know, making these subtle or not so subtle hints about, Hey, let's do, you know, let's do a take of better man and, and get it on the record and better's rebuffing him. And, you know, ultimately it doesn't get on there, but I think what's interesting is that it is on the, the next record. And I think that kind of tells you that maybe O'Brien ultimately won that chess match. And you wrote in your book in 1993, Pearl Jam was following a unique, unpredictable muse. Is, is this part of that narrative? I think so. Yeah, the, the muse was not what you would expect. It's not, they didn't want to be typical. They didn't want to be whatever, quote unquote, grunge was supposed to be, you know, what society had labeled it. I think that they had a lot of creative ideas. They had a lot of causes that they wanted to support, a lot of opinions it wasn't just about doing what people expected to hear. The songs on verses, you know, such a variety in there. I think that's a clear reflection of that. They'd soon adopt a new kind of sponsorship philosophy that they borrowed mm. from Neil Young. And yeah, that yeah. speaks to what you're saying. Can you tell us about that? You know, I kind of put the pieces together later on in life. Unfortunately, I kind of came to Neil Young late, but man, I'm glad I did. When was it? In the 80s, I think it was. He had this sponsored by nobody idea. It had something to do with the show. And I think it was a big beer. Budweiser, wasn't it? Yeah, Budweiser was supposed to promote the show. And he he was not cool with that. You know, was very anti-big brand for what he was doing. Again, he wanted to make music and and not have it be commoditized. And I think that really uh, resonated with Pearl Jam. They pretty much had the same sort of thinking. So they came up with that, you know, well, they didn't come up with it, but they sort of borrowed that that philosophy themselves. I think it's interesting that, you know, Jeff Amon and his brother Ames Bros, they, their poster art company, the first poster they did for Pearl Jam back in 1995, had that line on it, sponsored by no one. And I don't know, I feel like that said it all at that point in time for them. It's interesting uh, because I looked up those some of those posters and, and they're, they're not quite the Grateful Dead feel of, of psychedelia, mm-hmm. but it's very much a similar response where we're going to, you know, customize things to the way we want them and how we want them and when we yeah. want them, you know, and uh, it's, it's a philosophy, it seems, that uh, that has treated them well. Mm-hmm. I think if anything, they've followed that farther than one might expect. Some of the art in recent years has been very pointed. Definitely. And towards the end of the book, and I'm going to encapsulate it a little bit, but there's this this great paragraph that you write. So I'm going to read it to you, or read it to our listeners, rather. Mm. So stick with me. It's not that long, but you write that Pearl Jam is no longer at odds with the media or the world. The inverse is also true. The media and the world are no longer thoroughly enamored with Pearl Jam. And you later continue that their initial ascent was much faster and more perilous than they wanted, but ultimately placed them in an orbit where they could take seats behind the controls and plot coordinates for absolutely anywhere. I think that's brilliant, but I'm going to give you the last word on Pearl Jam and their legacy here. Thanks. I appreciate that. I think that, you know, what they've done since the Versus record sort of tells us everything. You can draw a line straight back to this record and it kind of validates that what they did back then has set them up for what they've done since. They're very involved in philanthropic work. Uh, They're politically active. They support causes both in the Seattle area and beyond. They support social movements. They, you know, they're dictating their tour terms. They have their own label. I think they knew that this is where they wanted to be ultimately. And they're there now. 
there's a lot of value as a fan to to having a musical act that you can turn to that sure they're big rock stars but i feel like what they've done also makes them relatable people as well that's pretty awesome Definitely. And I'd like to also mention, I knew some of their work, not tons, but the big hits and things like that. And it was the stories that you told and the culture of Pearl Jam that really led me into it. So if the success of a book is to to push you further into some of the recorded output that you're writing about it, I'd say you succeeded. And uh, thank you. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. I appreciate it. I mean, that's that's the most you can hope for, I think. We've been speaking with Clint Brownlee. He wrote Pearl Jam Verses in the 33 to 3rd series. Thank you very much for spending some time with us, Clint, and good luck. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. If you would like to buy this book, please go to allmusicbooks.com and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our Deep Dive podcasts there as well and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I'd also like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. You can check him out at fullsound.com. Finally, big ups to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout the podcasts. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all of the major streaming services. Please support local and independent writers and musicians. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive an allmusicbooks.com podcast, and now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Mm-hmm.